Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. Large parts of Kashmir remain under a security and communications lockdown, more than a week after the Indian government stripped the troubled Himalayan region of its special status. Rahul Beatty will have more for us on that story, but we're going to Washington first this week to catch up on the latest developments from there, and I'm joined on the line from the US Capitol by our Washington correspondent, Suzanne Lynch. Suzanne, there is one story dominating discourse this week in the US and beyond, and that's the death by suicide in prison of the financier Jeffrey Epstein, who was awaiting trial on sex trafficking charges. Um, The story throws up a lot of questions, and not least among them, how did the US authorities allow this to happen and what happens now to the Epstein investigation? But before we get into all of that, tell us something about Jeffrey Epstein. Who was he and why was he such a notorious figure even before his recent arrest? Yeah, Jeffrey Epstein was one of the most kind of recognisable figures on the US social circuit here for many years, particularly during the 90s. He's from New York. He worked briefly as a teacher and then he began working for the investment bank Bear Stearns. And then he became essentially a financier, uh, an investment advisor, if you like, to a lot of uh, very high profile clients. Um, but he, he was photographed a lot. He had very uh, rich and powerful friends. Uh, people like Bill Clinton was an acquaintance, uh, people like Donald Trump uh, and various uh, political figures and, and people from you know the entertainment world uh, throughout the 90s and the early 2000s. He also himself was extremely rich. He had a private island, a private jet and owned uh, mansions essentially in New York and Florida and really, really, uh, you know, lived the hot, you know, the, the, the jet set lifestyle, if you like. But he uh, became infamous really about a decade ago, around 2007, when um, there was a case brought against him on essentially child trafficking charges. A young woman uh, uh, reported to police that she had been lured uh, to uh, to give sexual favours essentially to Jeffrey Epstein when she was just 14. And then as a part of this, uh, there was quite a high profile at the time, a case, but he ultimately signed, struck a plea deal with prosecutors. He was convicted by Florida on, on state level and he spent 13 months, he was convicted 13 months in prison. Most of that though was spent kind of on day release where he was able to go to his office every day. So at that point, he really... Um, you know, burst onto the onto the news agenda. He was released, continued with his life, and then last last month, back in July, early July, he was arrested when he landed back in New Jersey on his private plane from Paris. And uh, authorities arrested him there and said they were opening up a fresh uh, investigation into his activities between 2002 and 2005. And just to recap briefly, Suzanne, on that Florida case in 2007, that sentence, 13 months, it seemed. Uh, it seemed very light. It was controversial, I think, at the time. And that controversy actually resurfaced uh, in, in recent months and it had repercussions even for a member of Donald Trump's cabinet. Just just tell us about yes. how that came back to the fore again. Yeah, this is why I think this story got uh, so much attention last month when he was rearrested, if you like. Uh, because Alexander Acosta, that's Donald Trump's Labour secretary, he was doing his job, was, was living here in Washington, D.C. Um, but focus began to turn to his role in this uh, in this trial or this case a decade ago, because at that time he was a U.S. attorney for Southern Florida and he essentially was over the whole legal system at the time. And he presided over this controversial plea agreement. Um, Essentially, what happened with that agreement was that Epstein, uh, through his, his lawyers, it, it succeeded in avoiding a federal prosecution and there's obviously a federal and state different different systems here in the United States avoided a federal prosecution which would have been much more serious and instead um 
he 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 got a state prosecution, and because of that, it was only a thirteen month uh, trial, as I said, or thirteen month conviction in prison. As I said, it was most of it was spent outside jail, uh, and at the time, this was even you know, seeing this raised eyebrows at the time. There was also a non-disclosure agreement as part of that. So this all, attention then resurfaced onto what happened back 10 years ago. Alexander Acosta came under a lot of pressure. Donald Trump uh, at the beginning and, and continues to really backed uh, Acosta, said he was a fine man, etc. cetera. Uh, but ultimately he was forced to resign. So that really put this on the political map in the last few weeks. Uh, Epstein was then, you know, was arrested, put in jail as he waited his trial. And then people woke up here on Saturday, Saturday morning to hear the news that he had been found dead in his cell. And what was the nature of the charges that he was facing, uh, Suzanne, prior to his, his death on Saturday? He, these were new charges, um, and this was again. These are, are federal prosecutors, not state level, um, but they're in the U.S. Southern District of New York, which is kind of a well-known um, district within the federal prosecution system that takes a, a tough line on things. Um, and they are looking at accusations of essentially, you know, sex trafficking of minors, both uh, crucially, both in New York and in Florida between the period of 2002 and 2005. Uh, obviously, it, it's presumed that there's some overlap with the original uh, case back in Florida, but there's also, as I said, mention of activity that happened in New York between 2002 and 2005. They've obviously been investigating this. Now there's questions about were people cooperating? Um, you know, what kind of information had they gathered to this point that they were ready to, to arrest him in this dramatic fashion on the 6th of July? So that's what they're looking, looking at. Um, and uh, one of the questions now will be, you know, how far can they go back and look at the original case in Florida 10 years ago? But they look like they were they felt they were on uh, sufficient legal ground to arrest him. And and he was, as I say, awaiting trial then when he died on Saturday. And so here we had a, a, a extremely high profile uh, prisoner, very high profile case. And then, as you mentioned, he's found dead in his cell in New York on Saturday morning, having taken his own life. It, it, it's, it's really amazing that this was allowed to happen, wasn't it, to, to somebody as high profile as this and in a case as important as this? Yes. Um, I mean, there's, and there's a couple of things to say about that. Uh, Epstein has been held in a facility in, in southern Manhattan that was very well known and that was had a, had a history of holding high profile um, suspects, usually people who were awaiting trial. So Bernie Madoff spent time there. Um, most, more recently, the, the drug, the Mexican drug lord, El Chapo. El Chapo. Yeah, so uh, there's a sense here that uh, also Epstein, crucially, about three weeks before he died, was found in an injured state in, in his cell. And at the time, it was unclear, was this an attack or was it an attempted suicide? Um, and it looks, that the implication was that it was an attempted suicide. So when that happens, Typically, prisoners then would be put on, you know, specific watch. Uh, guards would have to check on the prisoner every 30 minutes and they would have, they would be forced, if you like, to have a, a prison cellmate, uh, somebody to kind of keep an eye on them, etc. so they would not be alone. Uh, but it looks like this did not happen, that for some reason he was on his own in a cell and that prison guards did not uh, check up on him. Now, the one of the explanations, and, and this is what prosecutors or authorities are saying, was that simply this was a, a an issue about resources, that this jail was short-staffed 
Um, there are now reports that the there's a correctional officer who was supposed to kind of check on him and guard him was not actually a trained correctional officer, that he was working in some other kind of a role. And there are now reports that in certain jails, federal jails here, that people who maybe work as counsellors or teachers or other jobs within the prisons are actually being asked to, you know, to guard prisoners. So that's throwing up a whole issue there about resources where unions have become involved saying that their prison guards are overworked. And it looks like though the two prison guards who were on duty at that time have taken legal advice. And, and even some people are saying that the Trump administration's crackdown in immigrants, for example, has meant that a lot of people who've been rounded up by ICE are now being put in, into these jails and that's putting them under pressure. So that's that's one explanation, if you like. But the, the, the alternative explanation is, is a plethora of, of, of conspiracy theories, really. And since his death on Saturday, Twitter, social media has been has erupted, really, with conspiracy theories, one of which has been retweeted by the president himself. He has said very little about the Epstein case, really, in the last week or so. But on Saturday, he is in his New, New Jersey golf club at the moment um, on a kind of working vacation, and he retweeted a tweet by Terence Williams, he's a well-known comedian who is a Trump supporter, who seemed to suggest a link between Bill and Hillary Clinton and Epstein's death. He said that that Epstein had information on Bill Clinton and quote, he said, and now he's dead. Um, And he said, people who have information on the Clintons end up dead. Trump retweeted this. uh, And of course, the Clintons have been the subject of widespread conspiracy theories on the right for many, many years, for decades, in fact, in the United States. But of course, this is the kind of presidency we're living in that Donald Trump himself seemed to kind of endorse uh, this conspiracy theory. Others are talking about the Russians being involved. uh, Others are talking about maybe links with Trump. uh, But yeah, that's kind of dominated and sucked up a lot of the news coverage here over the last few days. And it's not surprising, really, is it, Suzanne, that um, this the circumstances of his death would give rise to conspiracy theories because he he was a man who knew a lot of powerful people and presumably he has taken a few secrets with him to the grave. Yeah, yeah. and actually, you know, a lot of people, it's, it's not just, you know, the fringes of, of the alt-right movement uh, and the dark web that are circulating these theories. You know, a lot of kind of more centre ground um, figures have also been suggesting that something isn't right. Bill de Blasio, uh, the mayor of New York, for example, he seemed to be kind of suggesting, too, that there was an issue here. He said, oh, it's just too convenient. Too many pieces are happening simultaneously that don't fit. And he makes that point exactly that he, that uh, Epstein had information on some of the most wealthiest and, and uh, you know, most powerful people in the country. And the fact is that his connections were, were spanned the political spectrum. You've got built two, one current president, one former president, and um, lots of former Democratic uh, congressmen. Uh, so he seems to have had connections on both sides uh, of of this. Uh, so I think that's why there is a suggestion uh, that you know is there something untoward here? Another theory, for example, and not to be not wanting to perpetuate these conspiracy theories that you know Epstein himself or some of his people would have paid somebody off in prison to to help him with with that uh, with his uh, attempted suicide. Um, so yeah, lots lots to be to be said still about this. But an investigation has started, and uh, investigators are going to want to look at any video coverage uh, and any witness statements from what happened in that cell in the in the hours before he died. What do we know about his connections with Donald Trump? I mean, there certainly seems to have been a friendship there at some point in the past. 
Yeah, he he did. And, you know, a picture, you know, is worth more than a thousand words sometimes. And, and Donald Trump, there are pictures of Donald Trump with Epstein. Uh, there's one picture of da- Donald Trump in and his future wife, Melania, in around 2000, it's about 17 years ago or so, or so um, with Epstein and um, the daughter of Robert Maxwell, who is one of his companions, who mm. who's become a big person of interest in this case so there's a picture of the four of those and then there's also a very kind of incriminating if you like video coverage of donald trump and jeffrey epstein partying essentially in mar-a-lago donald trump's florida estate uh where they're surrounded by women and at one point donald trump is kind of touching women i think they're a group of cheerleaders from across the united states so it's the two men uh, you know, enjoying themselves and ogling at these younger women. Uh, also, there there are other connections too. Both men lived in uh, had a, had homes in in South Florida in, in the Palm Beach area. This was where the original uh, case against Epstein was taken. And one of the alleged victims, um, she who is suing, she claims that she was recruited by Epstein when she was working in Mar-a-Lago. Uh, as a teenager. So there are a lot of connections here between the two men. They seem to be kind of, um, you know, not became rivals, if you like. Both were very wealthy. Um, at one stage, they uh, seem to be involved in bidding for the same property that had come on the market. And I think Epstein eventually got that property. Uh, so Donald Trump has been last month when he originally was asked about this following the arrest in July, he said that he had essentially fallen out with Epstein. They hadn't spoken for 15 years about something else. Uh, there is speculation that was about maybe that property deal. Uh, they they emerged. They ended up being rivals essentially. Uh, but uh, but like a lot of people, uh, rich and powerful people, in the last 15 years or so, 10 years ago, they have been very very keen to distance themselves from someone at, at one time in their life they were very close to or close to. And there's an inf- infamous quote, isn't there, from 2002 uh, attributed to Trump, which is probably quite embarrassing for him now, mm. um, in which he described Epstein as a terrific guy. And he said, he's a lot of fun to be with. It is even said that he likes beautiful women as much as I do. And many of them are on the younger side. Yeah, yeah. He said that in an interview in 2002, which I think um, was in New York magazine, uh, where, yeah, he talked, that's what he said about Epstein, terrific guy and the issue about the beautiful women on the younger side. So, like, this is not the kind of narrative Donald Trump wants to be involved with. Um, it's playing to all the criticisms about Donald Trump's uh, attitude to women. I think at one point he held some kind of a calendar competition in Mar-a-Lago that Epstein was invited to and attended. So really, look, it, it is not a, it's, it's not a good PR move for Donald Trump at the moment at all. So what happens now, Suzanne, to the investigation into Epstein? Will his alleged victims ever have their day in court now? Well, the um, again, this the Southern District of New York attorney, the U.S. attorney there on Saturday said that uh, this this investigation will continue. Crucially, he said that the original indictment he pointed out included one count of conspiracy. So this is suggesting now that the focus is going to turn to uh, Epstein's associates, anybody who enabled him, who co-conspired with him um, to engage in this alleged sex trafficking ring. Uh, the now focus is turning to some of his contacts. Number one is um, Giselle uh, Maxwell. She's a daughter of Robert Maxwell, the, the disgraced British tycoon who died himself um, some years ago. She was originally, it looks like, like she was Epstein's girlfriend, but they became very, very close. And she is pictured with a very close friend of his for years. She uh, is likely to be a, a person of interest in this inquiry 
it is unclear where she is at the moment. Uh, there are reports that she's maybe in London, uh, but she's not in the United States. So that could be prove difficult. And of course, she has um, she has absolutely, through her spokespeople over the years, denied any role in this whatsoever. Uh, but there are other uh, people. A very interesting angle will be the financial element of this. In the last few weeks, it's emerged that uh, Epstein had very, very strong connections with the, the CEO and founder of L Brands, which is the company uh, that owns Victoria's Secret, the underwear lingerie brand here in the United States, Les Wexner. And there's been extraordinary uh, insight now into that relationship. It has emerged that Wexner uh, really gave Epstein extraordinary power over his financial affairs. He signed over power of attorney to him at one stage. He allowed him to fire people, to write his taxes, to to pay people and basically run his business. And uh, he's a very, very wealthy man who, who's based in Ohio. Uh, now, during that period, Epstein himself became very, very wealthy and acquired properties and, and money, essentially, that that Wexner, that Wexner um, owned. So now a lot of attention is turning to that relationship. The stock price of Elbrand has already been affected here. It's quite a big story. Uh, the, the the company has said that they, Wexner, like a lot of people have said, he kind of had broken ties with Epstein about a decade ago. And he is saying um, that actually there was a lot of irregularities uh, by Epstein in terms of financial mismanagement. But there are a lot of questions now being asked about where did Epstein get his money? So it looks like there will be a very strong focus on the on the money trail, essentially, with bankers for Epstein, maybe cooperating with prosecutors, providing financial information. So I think that's going to be a huge part of the investigation. And the Attorney General, William Barr, has also weighed in strongly on this, as we'll hear in this clip. We will get to the bottom of what happened and there will be accountability. But let me assure you that this case will continue on against anyone who was complicit with Epstein. Any co-conspirators should not rest easy. The victims deserve justice and they will get it. Suzanne, those comments by William Barr, you'd imagine they should also give some comfort to Epstein's accusers. Yes. And so William Barr, as the, as the top official in the Department of Justice, is ultimately responsible for this prison that was a federal prison. It wasn't run by the state of New York or the city of New York. Um, yeah, his comments there tally with that that expectation from um, the Southern District of New York that these co-conspirators or potential co-conspirators will be essentially on the hook now. Um, and crucially, again, related back to the case in Florida back in 2007, 2008, as part of that plea agreement, um, not only did Epstein plead guilty to kind of the lesser charges at state level, um, they also it also protected, essentially shielded from prosecution associates who were allegedly working with Epstein to recruit girls for him. So uh, in that original document, um, that that non-prosecution agreement, uh, there were there were four women, it appears, who were named in that document, but they were given protection um, for, for what happened at that time. Now the question will be, will prosecutors now be able to, you know, look at once more and reopen this non-prosecution agreement? How far will that protect uh, protect those those named individuals uh, that were subject to that non-prosecution agreement back in 2007? Um, there seems to be mixed signals about that. Uh, lawyer, the original lawyers who were involved with uh, drawing that up will say, no, that protected them against any federal state, any kind of prosecution. 
the US District of New York, the Southern District of Manhattan, may say something very different, that no, this will allow federal prosecutors to pursue them. So I think that's going to be another angle to this investigation as it continues in the coming weeks. Well, Suzanne, thanks for, for giving us your, your input on that story. It seems to be the nature of the news cycle in the US these days that every big story gets quickly shunted aside to make way for another. And of course, prior to Epstein's death, there was renewed focus in the US on gun control in the wake of the mass shootings in Dayton and El Paso. Has any momentum towards reform in that area been lost now once again? Yeah, this is a real dominant story here still um, more than a week after those shootings. Um, the One of the issues that Congress is currently out of session and there have been calls for the Senate to reconvene, reconvene excuse me, to take up legislation that was passed by the House, the democratically controlled House earlier this year that would introduce federal background checks. The Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has essentially said that is not going to happen. What they seem to be focusing on instead is this other, this new plan, which is red flag laws. That's about trying to stop people with mental health issues getting guns in the first place. Now, already several states, I think 17 states, have some kind of a red flag law on their books. And now the move will be to try and make that more widespread, make it maybe a federal law or to try and encourage all states to do that. Um, now, there are a lot of limitations with that because obviously it, it's very hard uh, to, to implement that. It depends on friends and families, you know, going to police. And for example, there's been mixed. So in some states, it does seem to have really led to a decrease in 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 gun crime, essentially. But uh, in other states, it hasn't. The Sandy Hook massacre, where those children were were, were killed in a school in Connecticut, that person had uh, mental health issues, etc. But and the state of Connecticut had a red flag law, but it didn't pick up the person. So I think that's where the debate is going at the moment. And we are expecting Democrats today to launch, this Tuesday, to launch a new call uh, to do something on the background checks bill. And so this may really resurge in the next few days. So the big question will be, will that level of momentum still be maintained uh, right through the summer and into September? And will there be still the same kind of public outrage that we saw in the last week and calls for action from the public to do something on gun control? Okay, well, Suzanne, that's a debate we'll no doubt pick up again in the autumn. But for now, thank you. Thanks again to Suzanne Lynch in Washington. We're going to New Delhi now to talk to our correspondent there, Raul Bedi, about the continuing fallout from the Indian government's decision, announced on Monday of last week, to strip the state of Jammu and Kashmir of the autonomy it had enjoyed for seven decades. More than a week on from that decision, many parts of the Muslim-majority region remain under security lockdown. Raul, thanks for joining us. Could I ask you, Raul, to start by giving us a, a potted history of this region and the special status confirmed on it after independence? I, I was going to call it, you could call it Kashmir for dummies, if you like. I know the people who listen to this podcast aren't dummies, but for those of us who usually sit at the back of the class. Uh, well, it's, again, an extremely complicated story. Um, but briefly, uh, Kashmir was one of three states that decided to remain independent after independence from uh, the colonial government in 1947. Uh, the two others were taken over through uh, various uh, acts by the Indian government. Uh, but Kashmir, um, because of its location, geographical location between India and Pakistan, had a very peculiar state. Uh, had a very peculiar situation because the ruler of Kashmir at that time, the Maharaja of Kashmir, was a Hindu. Um, but the Kashmir Valley was a Muslim-majority area. 
Uh, and at that time, Pakistan sent in uh, a lot of what today are called Mujahideen, but in those days were called Lashkars or militants, armed militants, uh, along with some regular army people dressed as militants to take over Kashmir. Um, the Indian government then uh, imposed upon the Maharaja to accede to India. And uh, in exchange, they airlifted uh, Indian army personnel to Kashmir, uh, resulting in the current stalemate uh, with one-third of Kashmir in Pakistan control and two-thirds in Indian control. But after independence, uh, uh, but after this action, uh, the condition that uh, Kashmir remains a part of India uh, was uh, to give it this particular status, uh, constitutional status. It was called Article 370. Uh, which gave it uh, the authority to make its own laws, to fly its own flag, to have its own anthem. Uh, and uh, it also, which was the more disturbing part, disallowed anybody from outside of India from settling in Kashmir, which in a sense preserved Kashmir's ethnic status. Uh, now, all that has been done away with on the 5th of August, and uh, it all stands abrogated after about uh, 71, 70-odd uh, years. What exactly then did the government announce last week? What, what, what was the kind of precise nature of the, the changes that, that it brought in? Well, the government uh, moved about uh, four bills in Parliament. One was the abrogation of this Article 370, which was a part of the Constitution which granted Kashmir special status. Uh, the other part was uh, a part of the Article 370, which was called Article 35A, which uh, prevented anybody from outside of India to settle in Kashmir and take on government jobs. Now, all that is gone, and Kashmir is like uh, any other Indian state, where anybody can go and settle, buy land, take up a job, uh, and, uh, and and live. Uh, so, the in a sense, the ethnic uh, purity or the ethnic... Uh, exclusivity of Kashmir uh, has now been abrogated. And what really were the government's stated reasons for, for making this move at this point? Well, again, it's a complicated story. Uh, you know, the Article 370 or the special constitutional status that was granted to Kashmir was a temporary measure which uh, succeeding governments over the last 70 years said would be would be diluted and then Kashmir would automatically become a part of uh, of India like the other states, like the other 28 uh, states of India. Um, but that never really happened. And the reason that the BJP, the current Hindu nationalist government of Prime Minister Modi did it, is because the Hindu nationalists have always been opposed to this special status that was granted to Kashmir uh, 70 years ago. And in successive uh, election manifestos, the BJP has said that they would scrap this article and this special uh, status that Kashmir had. Uh, and uh, now they have gone and fulfilled an election promise which they had made, not only in the current elections in uh, April and May of 2019, but also in 2014 and in previous elections before that. And as you mentioned there, um, Rahul, it's a, the BJP party, it's a Hindu nationalist party. Uh, Kashmir is a Muslim-majority region. So how has the decision gone down in Kashmir? Well, again, uh, it's a little complicated because Kashmir is, comprises three regions. One is the Valley of Kashmir, which is predominantly Muslim. It's about 95-96% Muslim. Then there is in the plains, there is the region of Jammu. That is why it is known as Jammu and Kashmir. 
And then there is yet another part, which is a Buddhist majority, which uh, borders Tibet and is to the extreme north of Kashmir. It is called Ladakh. Um, the government also, other than abrogating the special status of Kashmir, has also bifurcated the state. It has made uh, the region of Ladakh, which is the predominantly Buddhist region, uh, a federal territory without a legislature, which means that it will be ruled directly by a civil servant or a bureaucrat uh, from Delhi. The, uh, the other two parts of uh, Kashmir are going to be the regions of Jammu and Kashmir, which are going to be a federal territory, but with a elected legislature. But so therefore, Delhi will have uh, a, a, a great amount of control over the region, but it will also have its own assembly with very limited powers. And just to, to explain about Ladakh there, the, the, the Buddhist majority, um, if you like, what was a portion of Kashmir until now, they've actually welcomed this intervention by the government. Isn't that right? Yes, they have welcomed this government because for the last uh, 70 odd years, in fact, ever since Kashmir was formed in the in 1947-48 after independence, the Ladakhis who are predominantly tribals and animists, and uh, most of them, there are about 80 different tribes from the hills. Uh, they had uh, objected to being a part of Jammu and Kashmir, but the Indian Prime Minister, the first Prime Minister, Nehru, who was actually responsible for this entire um, uh, formation of Kashmir, uh, insisted that Ladakh become a part of, uh, of Kashmir. Um, but they have rejoiced in it. But again, Ladakh is uh, also divided into two two districts. One is the district of Ladakh, which is about 96% Buddhist. And then there is the uh, district of Kargil, which is again an inhospitable area, which is at a height of about 14, 13, 14,000 feet, uh, which is predominantly Muslim, but it's Shia Muslim, which again is a different uh, lot of Muslims from the valley. So they are the ones who are objecting to the abrogation and uh, the creation of a special federal status. But the Buddhists are welcoming it and uh, they are in the majority in that region. Now, the government has introduced some pretty repressive measures in Kashmir since the announcement of the last week, hasn't it? Tell us about those. Well, the repressive measures are that uh, the all uh, telephone, mobile telephone, landlines, internet connections, television, radio, everything has, uh, has been locked down. Uh, nobody is allowed any any communications. Uh, movement is more or less restricted. There's sort of selected cur selective curfews that uh, have been in place. Uh, in fact, uh, there was the Hindu, uh, the Muslim uh, holy festival of Eid yesterday, uh, which marks the end of the month-long feast of Ramadan. Uh, that was celebrated uh, in a very, very muted uh, way. Uh, people are not allowed out on the streets. There were no... Uh, normally, uh, goats and sheep are slaughtered as a symbolic gesture. Uh, none of that took place. Uh, there was the government uh, denied reports of any kind of slogan shouting or stone pelting. But according to Reuters, BBC and Al Jazeera, there were uh, reports of uh, of that happening. Uh, so nobody really knows what is uh, going on. The few TV channels that are reporting from there. Uh, have again conflicting reports because uh, some of them are, uh, are reporting the uh, taking the government line and reporting that everything is normal, whereas the f the handful that are uh, supposedly allegedly objective are painting an entirely different picture. And what about detentions? There have been reports of up to three hundred people detained, including uh, political leaders. 
Well, all the major political leaders in Kashmir have been uh, have been detained, including two former chief ministers. Uh, they have been put in uh, earlier. They were under house arrest, but at, about after a couple of days, they were moved to uh, well, not really jail, but they were moved to confined spaces. Uh, they're not allowed to uh, allowed any kind of contact, and because they don't have any uh, any any phones or any com- means of communication, they can't uh, they can't pass their message out to anybody. And the government, it's unclear how long the government will continue with this clampdown. Uh, but so far, uh, it seems that it was likely to continue at least till Independence Day, which is on the 15th of August. Uh, and that is normally a sort of a rallying day in Kashmir and has been for many, many years a um, rallying point for uh, anti-India forces. So at least till the 15th, this is going to remain in place. Uh, it remains to be seen whether it does so after that or not. I mean, it seems it's really unsustainable state of affairs, doesn't it, Rahul, that you can... I mean, essentially, this is a form of internment, isn't it? Keeping people off the streets in case they might cause some kind of trouble or threat to the state. Well, this—I uh, mean, uh, some of the some of the doomsday uh, predictions are that this is likely to continue. It's likely to uh, start some kind of a bloodbath, uh, some kind of an uprising, because um, the government's actions uh, have united the Kashmiris in their. Uh, they already were. Uh, not very happy with India. There was a certain level of discontent with India. That discontent has now uh, solidified a little more and they're likely to uh, unite together against India. And uh, this is likely to uh, lead to uh, more violence because uh, for the last 30 years there has been a militant movement uh, in Kashmir which has claimed about 70,000 lives. Uh, for uh, the movement has been for an independent Muslim homeland um, because the Kashmiris are demanding independence. Neither India nor Pakistan is willing for that. Uh, so it's a hugely complicated situation which uh, I nobody really has any particular uh, and definitive answers to. And, and what about India's neighbours, Rule Pakistan and China in particular? Um, they're keeping a very close eye on all of this, aren't they? Well, Pakistan, uh, which controls a third of Kashmir and uh, lays uh, claim to the rest of Kashmir, uh, is uh, is become very uh, aggressive. Uh, in fact, uh, Prime Minister Imran Khan of Pakistan told Parliament last week that uh, it could lead to conventional war with Pakistan. His chief of army staff uh, said more or less the same thing and said that the Pakistan army is standing with the Kashmiris right till the end. Um, Kashmir is a matter of uh, of uh, honor in in Pakistan. In fact, the Pakistanis say that Kashmir is the unfinished business of uh, the partition of India in uh, 1947. China too has uh, disputed uh, territories with India, particularly in the region of Ladakh, and they have not taken very kindly to this uh, to the Indian move. Uh, so there is a, a fair amount of rumbling in the neighborhood. Uh, but India has been supported to a fairly large extent by other countries in Europe as well as in uh, countries like Russia uh, and some the organization of Islamic countries. Uh, so it's a, sort of a seesaw battle that uh, India is raging both uh, internally as well as externally. So Rahul, finally, the, the unanswerable question, but I'll ask it anyway. Where do you see this story going from here? Um, well, it's uh, I, I'll just answer it apocryphally. Uh, with a Kashmiri going to God and saying, when will the Kashmir problem be resolved? And God said, not in my lifetime. Uh, so even though that is a, that is a, a apocryphal story, it seems really uh, 
uh, it defies any kind of a definitive answer uh, because the line, because the border, the undefined border, really remains undefined, and Kashmir remains a disputed territory, irrespective of uh, you know losing its special status. Uh, so it really remains to be seen uh, how the government is going to resolve all these uh, implacable, in a sense, problems uh, and come to some kind of uh, peace. Okay. Well, Rul, it's been great to get your perspective, as always. Thanks for that. That's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now. <laughs>